Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, September 28, 2016. Taking a break from Code Orange. Do our light episode today. Let's get back and do a little comparative work in this sense. I'm working my way through the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. And note how I'm drawing the parallels to Christ and not you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word and compare in context what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's how that generally goes. And over and again, we find that what they're saying does not square with what God's Word says. In fact, far from it. And uh, and so this is a teaching program. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. But ultimately, the goal is to help you understand what Scripture says and how to read it the way Scripture would have you read it so that you're not deceived by all of these people running around the landscape. Now, as we are finishing up our Code Orange Revival coverage. If I sound worn out, I, I am worn out. It just huh. We got heresy all up in here, and it's just oh, so absolutely depressing to watch all of these people, you know, day after day, feasting on, you know, the, the theological equivalent of radioactive waste or, you know, medical waste. You know, it, this is... Awful. It's absolutely terrible. So, like I was saying at the beginning of the program, today we're going to be listening to another lesson of mine that I just gave, um, where I'm walking through the book of Genesis and the story of Joseph. And I'm using that story typologically to point to the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And in last week's episode of uh, Fighting for the Faith, you know, I explained how some of the reasons why we know this is a story that actually points to Christ because the typology is so clear that this is a story about a Joseph who takes Israel into Egypt. Uh huh. This is a story of how God saves all of Israel. Uh huh. And you know, today we're going to hear like the big reveal. You know, and it'll tell us a lot about the heart of Christ because Joseph. It is a lot like David. He is one of these high watermarks in the Old Testament that shows us and gives us glimpses of what Christ himself is like. And then the story of Joseph is a parallel, if you would, in typology of the, you know, of the, you know, first the glory, then the uh, humiliation and servitude, incarnation, death, resurrection of Christ, and then ultimately his exaltation. And all of this is to save Israel, yeah, to save Israel. So with that, grab your Bible and we will get into it. Here is uh, here is the next installment of Roseboro's Ramblings in Genesis. Here we go. Let us pray. 
Lord God, bless your word wherever it is proclaimed. Make it a word of power and peace to comfort those not yet your own and to confirm those who have come to saving faith. May your word pass from ear to heart, from heart to lip, from lip to life, as you, has, as you has, have promised, your word may achieve its purpose for which you send it. All of this we ask through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, we have been working our way through the book of Genesis. We took a year off. We're back in it. You know, it's kind of weird to think that way. It's like, you know, I've been, I've been here now longer than two years. You know, you have to think in seasons. But uh, we've been working our way back through the book of Genesis. We noted that the story of Joseph is one of these stories where his life in type and shadow mirrors many of the aspects of Jesus's life. You can kind of think of it as kind of like a typological type of prophecy. And we've also noted that in this part of the story, Uh, we begin to see Joseph, oddly enough, although we're going to hear a lot about Joseph, this actually begins where Joseph starts to drop off. Even the the clan, the tribe of Joseph, will not be a clan. It'll actually be split into two half-tribes. And Judah is going to be on the ascendancy. But what we learned about Judah last week was that the Messianic line through Judah passes on through an act of prostitution which makes you just sit there and go how is this supposed to be a great example for me to follow sometimes examples are given in scripture for you not to follow and sometimes there are examples for you to follow and it's important that you discern those things and yet at the same time we noted the fact that in jesus's genealogy there is four there are four women who are mentioned by name, which is very rare. And of particular note was Tamar. We're in Genesis 39, tail end. 39, 39, uh uh-huh. And uh, we know that Tamar is noted in Jesus' genealogy. So is Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. And not by name, but mentioned kind of in passing, is Bathsheba who Solomon was born to. And so the line of the Messiah, and this is the idea, is is that when we read the Old Testament, we're reading about a particular group of people who are the descendants of Jesus. We're following what the ancient church called the scarlet thread. It is the crimson red thread of the genealogy of Christ because we learn in the opening part of Genesis what our problem is. Our problem is that, well, God created everything good, We rebelled against God, disobeyed Him, and now there's consequences. And those consequences are both temporal and eternal, but God, in His great love and His great mercy for us, has promised a Savior. He even promised a Savior all the way back in the beginning, uh, there in the Garden of Eden, with the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, and in the process would have his heel bruised. And so the idea here is, is that all of these stories, why these people, why this group, and man, are they screwed up. Um, Say that what? Um, Hell, it's actually, um, let me kind of put it this way. Jesus conquers the devil on the last day, on the day of judgment. Um, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, what we refer to as hell right now is actually Hades. That gets thrown into the lake of fire. And you kind of think of the lake of fire as like hell on steroids. And it's, it's, this is a horrifying fate for anybody. And it's needless. And the reason why it's needless is because Christ has died for the sins of the whole world. And so it is not God's will that any should perish. Not you, not me, not anyone. And so, you know, in fact, that lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels. Right? It was not originally created for humanity. So any human who goes there, to use the biblical phraseology, any human being who ends up there has, done, has ended up there foolishly. Foolishly. And so remember, what, what is foolishness? Foolishness is saying that there is no God. The fool says in his heart there is no God. 
Now we call them doctors of philosophy. The scripture calls them fools. Okay, right? All right. So we are tracking then the story of Joseph. Joseph has been sold into slavery. And when we, we noted the fact that his coat of many colors is akin to the rainbow at, at, that you can see in the book of Revelation, the rainbow in the book of Revelation that is behind the throne of Christ. And so Joseph kind of typologically prefigures Jesus, which is why there's so much good about him in here. In fact, it's kind of fascinating. And our key text that we've been following to kind of interpret this is found in Philippians chapter 2. And here's what it says. Have this mind among you, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you notice, Jesus, although he is by nature equal with God, and the reason for that is simple and at the same time complicated, there is one God, and the one God exists in three persons. How that works, I couldn't tell you. All right? But we say, as Christians, we confess what Scripture teaches, that God the Father is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, God the Son is God, and there are not three gods. There's only one God. I don't know how the math works on that. Don't know how, you know, God is something very different. And so here in this picture in Philippians, Jesus, the Son of God, although equal with God, does not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is unlike our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were tempted by the devil to eat of the fruit because on the day that you eat of it, he said, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. They wanted to be like God. They thought equality with God would be something worth grasping for, and it plunged us into all the misery that we're experiencing right now. And you're thinking, are you sure that's really how that went down? Yeah, actually, that's exactly how that went down. And the way I know that is that Jesus himself affirms that how it went down, and he rose from the grave. Right? I always point to Jesus as the greatest biblical scholar who ever lived. He's got really good credentials. I know a lot of biblical scholars who've been to really important schools. They've been to Princeton, to Yale, to Oxford, and they have the words or the letters PhD after their name. They are doctors of theology, and yet no modern-day doctor of theology has the credentials that Christ has because he's none other than God himself in human flesh. He proved it by raising himself from the grave. And so when he speaks about the Old Testament as if it's actual history, the reason for that's simple. is because it's actual history. And you sit there and go, but, 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 but miracles took place. Come on. Come on, Pastor Roseboro. Miracles, really? Yeah? You have a problem with that? God can do what God can do because God is God, right? Something to keep in mind. But we learn this. Jesus, although he is equal with God, he humbles himself. He goes from the highest high to the lowest low, and he becomes a servant. Same with Joseph. Joseph is going to kind of in his life typify Christ's incarnation, his servitude, his death, his resurrection. And already in the story, his father thinks he's dead. And the reason why his father thinks he's dead is because, well, his brothers took his coat of many colors and splashed it with some blood from an animal and said, you know, kind of crime scene investigator style, is this the coat of your son? You know, these are the only remains we have. And his father thinks he's dead, right? So he's dead. Right. Now we come back to the text. We'll pick up for our context where we were last week. He finds himself as a slave in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife has the hots for Joseph. She kept saying to him, come lie with me, right? And that, she didn't succeed in doing that, but they got his clothes, she got his clothes, and then told her husband a lie, and he ends up well, in prison. Let me back up just a little bit so we get the story and then we'll move forward. 
Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled, got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had... (laughs) Well, the Holy Spirit's trying to get in and we obviously have blocked him. (laughs) Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. Back to the story. So she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, fled, got out of the house. He leaves the house without his clothes on. Kind of a fascinating little thing here. As soon as she, drew, uh, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. I'm sure this is how this went down, right? You know, puts on the tears and, you know, does the whole thing. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. <laughs> he almost raped me, right? <laughs> Liar. Yeah. As soon as I heard that I lifted up my voice, he cried out. He left his garment beside me and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home and she told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And so you notice, he did nothing wrong. He's accused falsely. And he's punished severely for a sin he did not commit. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I know of another person in Scripture who that sounds exactly like. Jesus. But in Jesus' case, this is where it gets interesting. Keep in mind, Scripture says that God made Jesus to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. The prophet Isaiah, writing 600 years before Jesus walked the earth, says of Jesus in Isaiah 53, he is pierced for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So unlike Joseph, Joseph actually suffers for a sin that he didn't commit. This is where it gets interesting, though. Jesus is our substitute. So you have to think of it this way. You got this big pile of sin that humanity has created. All right? This big, toxic, sludge pile of pussy, putrid sin. Right? And then you have Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's what God does. He takes all of that off of us, puts all of that on Jesus, and he becomes the single sinner. God made him to be sin, right? So that when we are brought to penitent faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness, that great white glimmering robe of glory, sinless righteousness that is Christ's, is placed on you, And you are no longer the sinner in God's eyes. It's called the great exchange. So Joseph's master took him, put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Okay, Um, Prisons are awful places. I've visited them on a couple of occasions where uh, somebody that I've known as a Christian was in prison, and they're just terrible. But... Our modern-day prisons are, well, the Ritz-Carlton compared to ancient Egyptian prisons. So keep in mind that's what's going on here. Now remember, God gave Joseph a dream, right? Gave it to him twice. His brothers would bow to him, and they hated this dream. And then his mother and father and brothers would all bow to him, and they all hated this dream, right? But God let Joseph know this. And then where does God send Joseph? straight into the ground. And how long does he work in this prison? 13 years. Here's what the text says. But the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. So you can kind of think of it this way. 
what kind of duties would a prisoner have over other prisoners? You know, prisoners need to be fed. Their buckets need to be emptied. You got the idea. I'm just sure that this is, for anybody who's a germaphobe, this is the equivalent of hell. And there is no hand sanitizer there. None. <laughs> they didn't know. I'm just saying. It, I, it's, it, it's to kind of help paint the picture. So, so the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. Whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Now, for those of you who are new, um, when in the Old Testament, not in the New, in the Old Testament, when you see L-O-R-D in your Bible, okay, this is kind of a pious practice that people have, but it points to this Hebrew word, Yahweh. That's God's name in Hebrew. It's Yahweh. And the Jews actually began a practice, which I don't know why we keep doing this, but the Jews long ago began a practice, and it kind of goes something like this. There's a commandment that says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You've heard this commandment, right? And so they thought, well, here's how we're going to keep this one. If we never say his name, then we can't take it in vain. <sighs> yeah, ufta, ufta. This is a Norwegian group up here. So here's what they would do. Anytime they'd be reading a text in the Hebrew and they would come across Yahweh, they would sub substitute it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. And for whatever reason, our English translators think that this is a great practice, and so they keep, keep it going when that's God's name right there. Let's put it back in where it belongs. So you'll hear me when I'm teaching through an Old Testament text, I'll oftentimes will say, because Yahweh was with him. And the reason why is because I see the word L-O-R-D, and God has a name. It's right there in the Hebrew. Every time I'm reading my Hebrew Bible, it's just sitting there staring at me. Why, when I read it in English, should I act like God doesn't have a name? This is pious nonsense. This is, this is awful. God has a name. He wants us to, to invoke it. Now, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Do I actually have to say the word Yahweh in order to take God's name in vain? No. The quintessential example of somebody taking God's name in vain, they're basically taking God's brand and they're slapping it on a counterfeit product. Ever been in New York City and somebody wanted you to buy a Gucci bag for 15 bucks? And you're thinking, Gucci for $15? Wow! Right? Yeah, the Nike shoes with the backwards switch. You kind of got the idea, right? Okay, you're sitting there going, wait a second, Gucci's don't sell for 15 bucks and Nike's are not 10. How are they doing this? It's real simple. They stole the logo. That's not a real Gucci bag. So taking God's name in vain is to take the authority, the name, the brand of God, and then slap it on your false teaching. You want to see this in action? Turn on that channel the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and see the guy there dabbing his head because he's sweating and working himself up. And, and if you send me a $1,000 seed offering, I feel the Lord telling you to do that right now. Hallelujah, right? The Lord's going to multiply that seed by a hundredfold. Do I have a witness? Do I have a witness? So that's an example of taking God's name in vain, where you're using God's authority and saying God's going to do something that he's never promised to do. I always find it fascinating. They always want you to send in that seed offering to their ministry rather than the local soup kitchen. A little bit of a divergent. We now continue with text. So the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him, and whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. Well, I mean, you kind of think of it this way. I mean, talk about a great career path. Hey, as far as prison work goes, in a B.C. prison in Egypt, hey, he was doing really well. Every time the annual evaluations would come along, it'd say, you are a model prisoner. We're going to give you an extra crumb of bread, you know, and we'll even give you a new bucket. So things are succeeding, succeeding for Joseph. So notice, he's gone from the top, his father's favorite son, now to the lowest position you could probably have in that world. And here's what it says. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Cupbearer, 
and baker. What's the cup bearer in charge of? Wine. The baker's in charge of what? Uh-huh. Bread, wine. Do you think this is accidental? No. So now we see typologically some kind of a picture that points us straight to the Lord's Supper. Bread and wine. And watch this as this unfolds. We're going to see death and resurrection play out. Okay, it's going to be fascinating how it works out, but it's all typology. So sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. One night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So you've got to have to wonder about that for a second, just a little bit. Okay, I don't know if anybody in prison is usually in a good mood. <laughs> okay, it's like, you'd think that every morning in the prison, people would be like, oh, right? Okay, so these guys have got to be more depressed than usual, like the usual prisoner, right? <laughs> you just think about it. Because I don't know any prisoners who are going, just whistle while you work, da, 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 right? You know, they're not doing anything like that. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in his custody, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. All right. Sounds good. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said, All right, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were these three branches, and as soon as it budded, it blossomed shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Pay attention to that third day stuff going on in Scripture, okay? Jesus dies and rises on the third day. Okay, so you'll notice, Joseph is dead. Where is he? He's in prison. These two guys are dead, right? And in three days, one of them is going to be resurrected. You see how this works? So in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me. Huh. Uh huh. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you think that's a throwaway remembering going on there? No. Okay. You kind of see what's going on, and you're thinking, how long before Jesus walked the earth was this written? Probably about fifteen, sixteen hundred years. In other words. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in the future had no bearing on their ability to do this because all of this is by the hand of God. God is ordering the steps of Joseph so that his life and the things that are taking place are prefiguring the work of Jesus. So only do when you you remember this kindness, remember me when it is well with you and please do, do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. He's perked up here. There were these three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, all right, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Well, I'm sure that made his self-esteem feel really good. 
so much for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now notice how, what's going to happen to him? He's going to be hung on a tree. Who else do you know in the New Testament that was hung on a tree? Jesus, right. You starting to see how this is working here? All of this stuff is pointing to Jesus. And when you see that, it begins to make you go, what is going on in this book? All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's Rose Bros ramblings in Genesis as we continue to look at the story of Joseph. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Joel Osteen, and I want to tell you about my latest book. Every day is Friday. I really don't know why I wrote this one, though. I was trying to come up with some ideas, and it turns out I don't have any. So that's when I started thinking of things people really liked. I was thinking of all sorts of stuff, but none of the things I was thinking were really working. My first title was, Every Day is Marshmallow Covered Rainbows, but my mama told me it stunk. And then I had one of those ideas, because somebody on the TV said they like Friday. I mean, what's not to like about Friday? There's a party every night. If your boss isn't all strict and stuff, you can be casual at work. And they's always having that 25 cent wing night down at Bubba Wings on Tuesdays. Turns out there are some people who don't seem to like the whole everyday is Friday thing and have made some not so nice remarks. They keep on saying things like, but Saturday is so much better. With every day being Friday, I don't ever get to sleep in or have a day off. Well, we here at Lakewood have a name for these kinds of people, and they are close-minded haters. Hey, that's my line! Uh, security, get this crazy person out of here. I'll show you who's crazy! Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code 
for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Bible is about Jesus and what he's done for you. Because it is. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. There are four ranks to choose from. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us, by the way. Helps us to have a steady income, a good firm foundation that we can count on for budgeting and then planning our next exploits and things like that. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Rose Bros ramblings in Genesis as we continue with the story of Joseph. So on the third day, pay attention to that third day stuff, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants. He lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. He placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now, I want to do a little excursus here. Do any of you know anybody who's a Jehovah's Witness? Okay, personally? Yeah? Okay, you know? Okay. Do Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate birthdays? Nope, they don't. Now, what's the reason for that? This, is, this passage has to do with it. Now, this is an important kind of a sidebar. There's a difference between a prescriptive text and a descriptive text. So here's a question I have for you. Is this text describing a historical event or is it prescribing a practice that you are required to follow? It's descriptive. So oftentimes people, when they twist scripture, the way they do it is they take a descriptive text and turn it into a prescription. Here's how the Jehovah's Witnesses do it. They'll say, they'll say, well, when we read our Bibles, we learn that there are two times in Scripture, two times when birthdays are mentioned. And here's one of them. And look what happened. Look what happened. Somebody lost their head. 
Now, the second time birthdays are mentioned in the Bible, it's Herod's birthday. And do you know what happened? Herodias' daughter did some dirty dancing. And look what happened. John the Baptist lost his head. So this means if you celebrate birthdays, you are doing evil. Okay, so here's what happens is that when you take a descriptive text and you turn it into a prescription without any warrant, then you create a man-made doctrine and you bind people's consciences to something that is not actually taught in Scripture. Is there a commandment here or anywhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt not celebrate birthdays? No. Book of Romans says where there is no law, there is no sin. Do we as Christians have the freedom to celebrate birthdays? Of course. Are we sinning if we do? Okay, the answer is not necessarily. Some, I know there's, there are ways you can sin in your celebration of one's birthday, right? <laughs> well, no, it, it, just, just having, getting hammered, yes. Getting hammered regardless of its, whether it's your birthday or not, all of that's a sin. So the idea here is we don't take descriptive texts and turn them into prescriptions. Let me give you another example in which this happens that is very popular today. Joseph had a dream. Look at, he had not one but two. And see, God wants you to have a dream like Joseph. To which I would say, keep that dream to yourself. I don't want to work in a prison for 13 years. (laughs) Is there any text here that says, because Joseph had a dream, therefore you're going to have one too? And you can even point to, well, that baker dude, he had a dream. That didn't work out so well. All right. So there we've got Joseph and he's still in prison. And in the midst of this, we get some kind of a typological picture of Jesus's death, resurrection and the Lord's Supper. And you kind of pull that all up and you go, that's fascinating. The story continues. It gets so good. So after two whole years after that, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. They fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. Now, that's quite a dream, right? Pharaoh awoke. And then he fell asleep and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt And all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, oh man, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Now, Joseph now is resurrected. He's gone from death. He is now alive. Hell, Sheol, Hades are all described throughout scripture as a pit. So notice he's now taken out of the pit, which means he is now alive. And thus begins Joseph's exaltation similar to Christ. He was at the top. He was brought down to the very lowest place. He's a servant in a prison. And now he's going to be exalted literally to the highest place. With one exception, Pharaoh is still above him. In much the same way that Jesus is exalted and still God the Father is above him. Does that make sense? 
So this is a perfect typology of Jesus' exaltation. Pharaoh said to Joseph, well, let me see, I brought him out of a pit, and when he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. This is good. You don't want a stinky, bearded fellow who's been spending years in prison before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and there's no one who can interpret it. I heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That is a great answer, by the way. You'll notice Jesus, when he heals, he always takes credit for his healings because he's the one who performed them. When the apostles heal, they say they healed by the hand of God. Joseph here knows that he's not God, and he knows that only interpretations like this belong to God, so God's going to give it to him, and he's going to give it to Pharaoh, but its origin is God, and so he's speaking very humbly here. So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor, very ugly, and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. The seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all of the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the spirit, in whom is the spirit of God? So then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, watch this, bow the knee. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So here we see the exact pattern revealed in Philippians 2, typologically being played out in Joseph. He goes from being a bucket emptier in a prison to now being second in command. And the command that Pharaoh gives that when Joseph is out and about, Everyone is to bend and bow the knee to Joseph. All, you can pull in all of these Christological themes now, and you can see this. Without Jesus, you can't rightly understand what's going on in this story. You can read it and, and find, well, some, some great benefit and themes in it. 
But in its entirety, you can't get its fullness out of it. You can't actually dig down and suck the marrow out of this story until you can see all of this is prophetically and typologically pointing to the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. And why is Joseph going through all of this? Answer, and you're going to see this as the story develops, he's doing this to save his family. Everything that he has, he has gone through, what they, his brothers, meant for evil, God has used for their salvation. In the same way, what we meant for evil with Christ, yeah, we're all guilty of crucifying him. God has turned that so that the most wicked event in human history, the one innocent man among us is crucified and murdered by us, God takes that and turns it for our salvation. You see? Same thing going on in the story of Joseph. So, they called out before Joseph, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all of the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent no one shall lift up, up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah and gave him, a, gave him in marriage to Azanath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. A little bit of a note here. When Christ is finally exalted and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, what is the next order of business on the eschatological um, program. Marriage feast of the Lamb. Right. Again, Joseph, he goes from zero to hero. Everybody bends the knee. Oh, and he gets a bride. You think any of these details are on accident? No, they're really not. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh king of Egypt, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered all, all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance. We actually have some of these, these grain storage facilities archaeologically. We have, they, we've uncovered them like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born, born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship in all of my father's house. Manasseh is Hebrew for making to forget. Kind of a weird construct. The name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in all of the land, and that means to be made fruitful. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all of the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all of the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to, jo to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all of the earth. Now notice this last bit here. It's like the whole world. Now, does that mean people traveled all the way from China to Egypt? Probably not. All right. But by putting this in, what this is really saying is, is that this salvation hints at the salvation of the whole world. In the same way that Christ bleeds and dies for the sins of the world and is resurrected for the sins of the world, that salvation is for all people, all tribes, all nations. This little piece of data here is put in so that we notice that the scope of this salvation is meant for us to be understood as global. Does that make sense? All right. Um, also backing up, it says Joseph was 30 
when he entered the service of Pharaoh, Jesus was 30 when he got his medicine. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's all he's, he's sitting there going, this can't possibly be an accident. God's behind it. I know. There's just like, no way. No way. God, it's like God is just sitting there going, come on, I, I'm really this powerful. I'm this smart. It's really all there on, on purpose. So I got a question. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember if it was answered a long time ago or not, but when Joseph was um, thrown into the pit yeah. by his brothers, was that a plan of God's or was that a human thing that his brothers were jealous and they just, God turned something that we do as sinners uh-huh. into something good? The answer to your question is yes. And here's the idea. Truly, it's his brothers acting in jealousy. Right. And it's sinful. Right. beyond, In fact, murderously so. And yet God takes this and turns it. And this kind of fits into the motif that God takes our paths, as crooked as they are, and he makes them straight. Okay? This is God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. And you can say that even as you're breathing your last breath. God is even causing this to work together for good. So the idea then is, is that this, this is an example of man acting sinfully and God taking that and just going and straighten it right out and working their evil for salvation in the same way that the crucifixion, as evil as that is, is worked out now for the salvation of the whole world. So there's your theme. Okay, next motif, and you brought it up, is the Egypt motif. Read the Old Testament. There are two places in the Old Testament, one early on and then it switches later, where it's really kind of describing sinful, idolatrous world. You know, in that kind of, you know, the Gentile nations. Egypt is, is that symbol early on. But then later it changes. Later it changes from Egypt to Babylon. And when you read the book of Revelation then, all the way at the back of the book, the motif of Babylon pre- prevails. Mystery Babylon is considered to be that world system where the Antichrist comes up through. Mystery Babylon. So you kind of have to see Egypt, Babylon, and Mystery Babylon as all kind of working on the same level. They're kind of the same thing. And so you're right. Joseph goes into Egypt, and he's over all of Egypt. And he's the one responsible for giving everybody in the world the bread of salvation. Jesus Christ. Okay. At his ascension. What is Jesus doing right now? Where is he? Right hand of God the Father. That is a seat of authority. Jesus is currently ruling and reigning. Currently. Now. He's not up in there twiddling his thumbs going, Dad, when do I get to rule and to reign? I'm kind of bored. (laughs) And yet Egypt is also a point of salvation because through Joseph going to Egypt, he is saved through Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus. No, exactly. Now, you missed this in the first week, but let's pick up on that. Okay? When Joseph is having dreams, who in the New Testament has dreams that results in Israel going into Egypt? Answer, Joseph, Jesus' non-biological earthly father, right? Say same thing. So Joseph and Joseph are working out here. Both are dreamers of dreams. Both, it results in Israel going into Egypt. Jesus is Israel squished into one person and he goes into Egypt to fulfill the prophecy out of Egypt I will call my son right so now coming coming full circle here working with the bread motif Jesus who is currently ruling and reigning he really is the whole world there isn't an administration a kingdom that is on earth that has not had Jesus at least sign off on it does that make sense all right. Read Romans 14 or 13, 13. Read Romans 13. And here's the idea. Currently, Jesus rules and reigns over this sinful world, and he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. And we feast on his body and blood, the Lord's Supper. And in that, we are refreshed. We are saved through the famine. We are saved through this time. And so the, the motifs are working out beautifully. 
All right. The marriage, the marriage of Joseph to yep. um, the Egyptian yep. lady, um, Christ. The Egyptian lady. <laughs> What's her name? Whatever, it doesn't matter. Azanath. Azanath, the priest of On. Priest of On. And no, you'll notice, you'll notice that uh, Joseph's bride, um, you could say, has kind of an idolatrous past. Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. Christ marries himself to us. Uh huh. Right. And um, Joseph has two sons. His first son, he says, is called um, Manasseh. Manasseh. Uh-huh. And that means he forgets the trouble of his father's house. Uh-huh. Through Christ, through our marriage to Christ, we're able to forget the troubles of our earthly uh-huh. life and place everything into Christ. And then his second son, the name of Ephraim. Ephraim. Fruitful, that's right. Fruitful. Right, and we are fruitful in Christ yeah. as well. Yeah. So the whole motif goes together as well with everything else. Yep, exactly. Now, here's the thing. I, in, in my teaching of this, I am not going to drill down into every little nanotypology. But what you're showing here is that if you spend some time kind of thinking through this text, work through the story of Joseph, and then start kind of thinking, okay, how does this point to Christ? What, how does this point to Christian doctrine and theology? You're going to find that all of these little bits of, of data that might seem throwaway, now they're not. They're little hooks on which you can hang stuff on that points directly to Christ, just the way he said. And this is how God invites us to read and to understand these stories. These are all, excuse me, about Christ. Now we're going to stop there today. Next week, Joseph's brothers are coming to town. The ones who sold him into slavery. Oops. Yeah. Awkward. <laughs> yes, exactly. Awkward. But what Joseph does is so like Jesus, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. We'll pick it up here next week. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition, or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.